You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. You're listening to this podcast. You love podcasts. Hopefully, you also love The Second City and our work. You know who else will love podcasts from The Second City? Your colleagues and employees. I'm excited to share a new partnership that The Second City Works is entering into with Venly, an audio technology company that allows businesses to share audio and podcasts directly for employee engagement and learning and development. Our new series, First Takes, uses amazing corporate insights and teaching that we've developed through the years and communicates it in eight short podcast episodes. Share this content with your employees on channels like Slack, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint, First Up, and your LMS, all with enterprise-grade security, privacy, and analytics. Interested in sharing this content and learning more? Register at www.venly.co slash Second City, and we'll get you set up. Once again, it's www.venly.co slash Second City to get access to the First Takes content series. We're looking forward to learning with you and your colleagues. All right. The audio might be a little choppy on this one, but I don't care at all because uh, I got to interview James Burroughs goes by Jim. If you don't know him, um, you know his work. He has directed more than 1,000 episodes of sitcom television and has earned 11 Emmy Awards and five Directors Guild of America Awards. He wrote on the Mary Tyler Moore Show and the Bob Newhart Show. He was the resident director on Taxi, and then he co-created the beloved classic Cheers, directing 243 of the 273 episodes as well as his show, Will and Grace, where he directed all 246 episodes. He directed the pilot for multiple and multiple episodes of Frasier, Friends, and Mike and Molly. And he also did the pilots for Two and a Half Men and Big Bang Theory. I mean, just think of the span of time and how monster hits those shows were. Uh, He's got a great new book called Directed by James Burroughs. Enjoy the pod. Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the S-A-N-D. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Jim Burroughs, welcome to the show. Happy to be in the second city. Yeah, this is great. Um, in the epilogue of your really terrific new book, you write two things that I think are so important, not just for comedy, but in life. You write, the world has changed drastically, but there is one constant. People will always need to laugh. And then you write, 
I still believe kindness is the most important currency you can trade in, in business and art. It brings out the best in everyone on all levels and provides the best possible outcome. I, from reading your book, it feels like you learned that lesson from home, but also from work in the theater. Uh, well, I, um, I learned it, a lot of it from my dad, who yep. was, uh, who, that's how he operated. He was a playwright director and um, he dealt with, you know, the only time he got angry it was when he was directing. It was with the playwright who was that he was the playwright, too. So he would have internal arguments with himself hmm. but, uh, to actors and to everybody else. He was the kindest human being and he got what he wanted. And uh, that's how I've always operated. Yeah, so that was that was the model for you. It's it's funny too because um, the late great Harold Ramis was also someone who really worked to keep a kind set, uh, uh, which was not always easy for him. Uh-huh. Yeah, <clears throat> I imagine in the movies it's a lot harder than in television. Yeah, yes, totally. Uh, so my wife and I both worked at Second City for over thirty years, and she's actually a tenured professor of comedy. She found and oversees the first BA in comedy writing and performance at Columbia College. And she was when I told her I was going to interview, she's like, I teach him when I teach the golden age of comedy. I teach Jim Brooks, uh, Norman Lear and you. Uh, so just so you know, there are now at least a decade worth of young people who are, get exposed to your work, love your work. They, they're blown away by Taxi and Cheers and all, all this wonderful work. I mean, it still holds up. And that's got to be so gratifying for you. Oh, it is. It's uh, and to be linked in a category with those two gentlemen who I've, I've worked with both of them is just, just an honor. Both of them older than me. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's rare in this business that I, that at this day and age, I get to work with people who are older than me. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of that. So I keep getting older at second city, but many of the people who work here are like college age. uh, And I like to test their knowledge of movies and television. So a few days ago, your book got delivered to me. And uh, Deja, who works in our box office, asked me who I was interviewing. And I asked her if she knew the show Cheers. And she said, yes. Will he know Mert Rich? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, how do you know Mert Rich? And Mert was her professor. She loved it. And all the kids loved him. Oh, Mert and Brian. Yeah. Mert and Brian Pollock were partners uh, who worked on Cheers, I think, for a couple of years. Yep. And and Second City, Mert's a well-loved Second City alum. Um, So I want to talk a little bit more about your dad. And I love your dad's direction on how you react to a joke as an actor, which is, quote, to pretend that you have three holes in the top of your head and you have three balls. And as you're trying to react to the joke, you're trying to get the three balls into the holes. Less is more. (laughs) That's such a funny, but it's actually, I think, a very useful visualization to try to have that kind of reaction, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's I use it all the time to curtail the overly large reaction mm-hmm. that um, doesn't happen in real life. And uh, the audience will less is more. It's it's that's my uh, I think that's Mies van der Rohe. But um, uh, that's my that's my motto. Uh, you know, uh, in re- reactions in comedy, uh, especially for the sin like Judd or Teddy or Eric. Less, less is more. Just the eyes are enough that, you know, so it is rolling those three balls in the hole. Yeah. Cause you talk about 
you say, I'm concerned about believability and the economy of comedy, the shortest distance between the character and the laughter and the best way to get there. Um, and that's where when I first started working at Second City, I didn't realize there was going to be so much math. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it, a lot of it is like, oh, like you learn about the rule of three and then you're also figuring out how do I shorten this? How do I shorten this? Because you will get a bigger laugh. It's, it's, it's very much about subtraction as opposed to addition a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, if you sit in a writer's room while they're forming a joke, you can see they, you know, they'll they'll take out commas if it makes it if it if you're, you're going to get to the joke quicker. So uh, I watched the first five episodes of Taxi and my colleague uh, Brendan last night watched the pilot episode of Friends. And we were comparing notes this morning because we're both nerds. Uh you accomplish so much in the first episode in terms of introducing people, but it never feels like exposition. What, what's the, what is the key to the craft of that first episode? In, uh, in which, uh, in uh, any, any of them, any of pick, pick one. Well, the, the one, well, the key in, the key in friends and the key is similar to the key in Will and Grace because you have an alien who comes into the situation. You have Diane Chambers who enters the bar. So Sam has to explain to her who everybody out is in the bar and what mm-hmm. he does. And in, and in the friends, you have Rachel who comes in. So, you know, she comes in, you know, five minutes into the piece, but still other than the, 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 um, the five characters sitting around talking, uh, they, they talk, they, they explain to Rachel who they are. And uh, so that's 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 storytelling 101. That's, um, you know, it helps to have the alien who gets the story explained to him. If you don't have that, you know, on Taxi, you had John, who was Alex's first customer. Yep. uh, Who Alex picks up and then brings him into the garage and then introduces all the characters to him. So that's how you get away with that in, in in a sitcom. Having read the book and then watched the uh, the first episode of Taxi, I also got struck where you talk about, I mean, it's the set. It's the sort of multiple levels. And and then that the works so beautifully the first time because you got Louie just yelling and yelling. He's at this highest perch. And the minute he exits, that is such a great loud laugh line because he's so small. I know because he appears so big in the cage. Yep. Yep. I think I talk about in the book the fact that that didn't happen to the last scene when we when we read the pilot and uh, Jim and uh, Jim and Ed and Stan and Dave decided, no, you have to reveal him. You, 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 you can't, you can't, uh, you can't bring him out of the cage. I, let's see. They waited to bring him out of the cage. He initially came out of the cage right away, but they waited until the end of the first scene to bring him out of the cage. Yeah, I, I don't know if I remember that correctly. You watched it. Did they bring him out at the end? No, he 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 comes out like uh, well, I'd I'd say like sort of uh, three scenes or so yeah. in, maybe even four. Uh, because yeah, if you bring him out too early or you bring him out too late, you're not going to get yeah. the benefit of that incredible you know oh, moment. Oh, I just lo- I love this stuff. So you so. Can you talk a bit about you were working in theater, you were doing stage management, um, among other things. 
And you worked on this production of Breakfast at Tiffany's. And while that was sort of notorious in its own way, it also ends up being a conduit by which you end up getting into television. Can you tell us a little bit about that production? Right. Uh, I was um, uh, I was uh, assistant to the assistant stage manager on uh, a Broadway musical called Breakfast at Tiffany's that my dad wrote. Mm-hmm. It was not his best uh, he was then summarily fired David Merrick mm-hmm. and Edward brought in uh, Edward Al. So I can't believe that a Burroughs was replaced by Edward Albee, but that right. was, that was Dave's choice. It had a big advance sale because you had Mary Tyler Moore in it and Richard Chamberlain, Laura Petrie and uh, Dr. Kildare. Mm-hmm. So uh, David got rid of my dad. And I said to my dad, can I stay on the Titanic? Mm-hmm. And he said, yes. And I was kind of in charge of Mary and Dick. I would show them around uh, the stages and where they had to enter and where they had to exit. And so the uh, the show had gone out of town with my dad and was, you know, not not great. But they brought it back into town. We rehearsed for a while and we did four previews on Broadway. Yep. We were hoping to do more, but we were hooted off the stage. Mm-hmm. And at the every, at end of every scene, when Mary would come off, she would in my arms and start crying because mm-hmm. it was such a horrible experience. Mm-hmm. You know, audience was talking back to the actors. That's that's not a good thing. No. And so um, we um, so we became kind of these two people in a lifeboat. And then after I'd been doing dinner theater for a long time and, and a stage managing and dinner theater summer stock and uh, regional stuff. I, when I watched the, the Mary Tyler Moore show and I said, wow, they're filming theater. They're doing 20 minutes in, in, uh, in a week. I'm doing a two hour play in a week. I think I can do it. So I wrote her a letter and uh, I got an answer two weeks later from Grant Tinker saying, we have four multi-camera sitcoms that we're producing simultaneously. And we like theatrical directors. Mm-hmm. So they brought me out to do one show. And so the first one you got to observe, though, was the Bob Newhart show, right? I got, uh, yeah, because Bob started early because he would go to Vegas in June. Okay. So he, would start in, he would start in uh, late May and early June. And so I went and I watched there for a while. And then I, then I went over to the Mary Tyler Moore show where I met my mentor, Jay Sandrich. And uh, in October of that year, I got my first show. And I'm trying to remember, I don't think I was clear on it or I didn't take the right note. Was was your first show, Mary Tyler Moore show, the one where you had to turn around that script that wasn't working? Or was that later? Yes. Yeah. No, that was my first. Oh, my God. I, said, I mean. Yeah, I said to uh, Hardy Price, who was the second in command at MTM under Grant Tinker, who was Mary's. I said, uh, after the reading in the Sea of Danish, I get a bagel. Mm. So uh, it was a ter- it was not a great script. It ter- didn't turn out to be a good show, but uh, the uh, half hour before we shot the show, I was walking backstage and Mary came out of her trailer and she came down to me and she said, we feel our investment in you has worked out. Mm. This was even before I shot the show. So whatever I did, whatever I cooked up in rehearsal with those six monumental actors. And I was a little Pesha seemed to have worked. And uh, uh, Katie bar the door after that. 
we had a little ceremony here last week because Matt Asner donated Ed Asner's second Emmy uh, to Second City. So we're storing it in the training center so all the students can see it going by. And we had, and I, and I got to meet Ed a few times and I didn't realize that you guys were looking at Shelly Berman for, or they were looking at Shelly Berman for that character. Yeah. Originally, I think it was written for Shelly. So interesting. I could see that. I could see why. They, they went for interesting casting. The great thing about that show was other than Mary, you had never seen anybody else. Hmm. And, uh, the, especially with the guys, those three guys with uh, Ed As and Gavin McLeod and Ted Knight, they had all played heavies. Right. They were all on the Untouchables and uh, uh, whatever those shows were back in those manics and all those shows back in those days. And, you know, when you get a guy who looks like like they did and they're all of a sudden funny. Wow. That's just yeah. that's just breakout. It's interesting because. You know, you've got actors, you've got comedians, you've got stand-ups. And traditionally, the stand-up comics have had a harder time at second at places like Second City. Shelley Berman had a harder time. David Steinberg kind of had a harder time. The one person who didn't is Robert Klein, who's your, your good friend. He, he had my, a, dear, my dear, yeah. dear friend. Yeah. In, in fact, when I was going cross-country for the first time in 1965, before I ever... Um, uh, ever became a television director. I was going out to be a dialogue coach on a series my dad wrote. I stopped in Chicago to see Robert and David Steinberg was in the company. Sandra Karen was in the company. Yeah. Betty Willard was in the company. Oh. Uh, uh, I don't remember anybody else. I don't think. But I'm I trying to think who the other, the other female, because that's after Zora Lampert. Yeah. There was no. Alex somebody. Alex. Oh, yeah. Alex Kanan? I don't remember. Uh, yeah, I think that's who it was, because I know I put him in touch with Bob at some point. And then, and, you know, and Fred, I mean, I really think, too, that because Robert Klein is, is I mean, he's got such a gifted mind. I mean, he's the, like, you know, uh, just a seminal figure in, in st- stand-up. But also, when you've got Fred Willard in the cast, it's kind of hard not to, like, gel and be happy. Like, who, who wouldn't want to work with Fred Willard? He was. Uh, I got to work with him on uh, on Back to You with Kelsey and Patricia Heaton. And oh was, yeah, it was just it was just wonderful. Yeah, you. So one of the things we cherish at Second City, and and I think it is key to our to the individual success of our performers, is how grounded they are in ensemble. That this is it's above. You know, we always our, our things where we say all of us are better than one of us. Your job is to make your partner look good, and like you. You know, we do that theatrically and, and you build these incredible ensembles um, for, for these shows. And I think that, that, that is just, that's an orientation bred out of theater, I guess, for you that you brought to TV. Uh, that's the kindness gene. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, the, the theater gene, uh, uh, you know, because in theater, you don't, you don't, you have a lot more time than you have in uh, in sitcoms. So in theater, there's, I spend one or two days talking and trying to build a, an ensemble. Uh, but in, in sitcom, you have to do it really quickly. Although you have, although you have multiple shows to do it, uh, you know, but um, yeah, that's, I feel if we're all happy, that will come across. If we like one another, if we 
fact that dare I say, if we love one another, that's going to come across the screen yeah. and, grab, and grab the audience. So that's, that's my kindness gene and also my uh, theater gene. Um, you also say that coming from theater, you were schooled in how to talk to actors. Um, talk more about what that, what that means to you. Uh, I, I, I was, I, you can't learn that talent. You no. Have to be born, no, you have to be born with that. So I, that gene came, I'm sure from Abe and, yeah. uh, and, you know, I saw a lot of examples how he would do it. You know, he would, uh, he would do, um, you know, if the, an actor would suggest something, uh, Abe would say, okay, we'll try it that way. Mm-hmm. And you'd try it that way. And then he would cleverly say, I think the way I did it was better, but you were giving the actor a voice, right. which I do, which I do all the time. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't say it's my way, the highway. I, that, that, you're not going to win any friends that way. You're not going to create harmony that way. So I, I create this world where everybody check your ego at the door. Everybody can say anything. And it's all about making the show better. Uh, in 1998, my wife and I were lucky enough to see your production of The Man Who Came to Dinner at Steppenwolf. Um, did, was, that, was that a scary experience or a, a pleasurable experience, a hard experience? What, what do you remember from it? Well, first of all, it took too long to get a result. I had a, I had a rehearse for two weeks, two mm-hmm. and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, Mahoney, Mahoney hired me. Mahoney yep. said, you're going to come direct. And that show was on its feet in a day and a half. And all the actors, all the actors went to Mahoney and they were saying, what is going on here? Yep. You know, what, what is going on? And said, Mahoney said, relax. This is the way he works. So once I get it on his feet and I have a, it's like a mailman, when a mailman knows where to go, uh, knows his route, then I can work on nuance. Mm-hmm. So once it was on his feet, I just kept doing the show over and over again. And I would change things and, you know, I even added, oh, don't tell, don't tell the Kaufman estate, but <laughs> I added about four or five jokes that, you know, were, they became huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ann Kaufman, George's daughter, came to see it, and she, she, she blessed me. She said, okay, good. That was okay. But I had, I had a great time. Yeah. I, uh, <clears throat> um, I sat in the back of the theater like my dad and, and took mm-hmm. notes and... Mm-hmm. Uh, during previews and uh, I, uh, I, you know, it was, it was nice to be back where I was born. In right. fact, on, <clears throat> and they have the, uh, the what's it called? Founders night or something like yes. that. Yeah. They have a founders night. And in the show, there are uh, Sheridan Whiteside who Mahoney played is confronted uh, is uh, gets to meet three convicts. Mm-hmm. In the play. So for that night, I had uh, Sinise and Kinney and Jeff Perry play the convicts and Mahoney Mm -hmm. didn't know. Oh, great. Yes. (laughs) So as they, I'm sure he broke. He turned around. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's going to see him break. (laughs) John turned around and, but anyway, I had a, excuse me, I had a great time and I I got to work with, uh, you know, um, Alan. Oh, Wilder, yeah. Yep. Alan Wilder and uh, Bob Was Bueller. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yep. And uh, God, I can't. Was Rondi in that? Rondi, who be, 
You know, we came on, came. No, I don't think Rondi was in that. Okay. Rondi, Rondi came and I, she was on Mike and Molly that I did. Oh, she, okay. Yeah, she did Mike and Molly. Fran Guinan did Mike and Molly because. Oh, Fran. I, I did a show with Fran. He, he, what a talent. I know. He played Mike's father. And Mark Roberts, the creator, loved Second City. So I loved Chicago. So mm-hmm. he brought out a lot of Chicago actors. Well, you, you were, I mean, Schwimmer, you, you worked with a, a, a ton of them. Yeah. 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 There's something in the water here. Yeah. Oh, there is. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to talk a bit about Will and Grace because this feels like your Norman Lear moment. This feels like a place where your art crossed over into helping a social movement that while under threat right now, apparently, uh, really just like it, it, we, we'd waited so long or, and thought it would take so long. Then it felt like it just sped up. But I've, I've seen the scientific research on this, that will and grace is, is very much a part of what's responsible for gay marriage in this country. And what an amazing part of your legacy that I don't know that I, I don't know if you expected to have something like that. Uh, we never set out. The boys wrote Max and David, Max call Max Muchnick and David Cohan wrote a wonderful script that was sent to me and I, I had to do it. <clears throat> it was written so well and handled the situation so well. And we never set out to change the world. We just set out to do a show that was a little bit high concept because you had a gay man in a lead, another gay man as a co-star and an erotic Jew and a pill popping woman. And, uh, if that doesn't sound like a family show, I don't know what does. Right. And uh, <clears throat> we we did this show. <clears throat> excuse me. Yep. And we made a point. I made a point in the pilot to have a kiss between uh, Will and Grace. At the end of the pilot, they kiss. Mm-hmm. Because I felt that 25% of the country would never watch this show. That's right. Uh, and then I felt like so you could get 75% of the country to watch it. And if they watched it, they, they would probably see how funny it was. Mm-hmm. But if I could see if, they, if Will and Grace kissed, then maybe those people who watched it would think that Will could possibly be straight, you know, take the magic pills. Right. Become straight. Right. And so we did a kiss in the pilot. We did a, did a kiss at the end of the first season. It was never going to happen. But we felt that was important just to get people to watch it. Now, it took a while for people to watch the show because word of mouth and television back then, that's before the Internet, really. Or, uh, you know, word of mouth and television takes a lot longer. So it took a lot longer for Will and Grace to take off. But once it took off, um, people saw how funny it was. And again, we never... We never proselytized with that show. Right. We just did a show with ordinary stories with these four characters. And the moment I knew how resounding that show would be was uh, I, I would drive carpool in the uh, uh, from my daughter in uh, 98. She was like in the eighth grade mm-hmm. or the seventh grade. And I would load like four 13 year olds in a car mm-hmm. and I'd be driving to school and invariably one of them, I, I had Thursday 
invariably one of them would say, what's going to be on Will and Grace tonight? I knew that this young generation was watching the show and was comfortable with the show. Right. And then I had a sense that there was some far reaching nature to the show. Hmm. It's interesting. We talk a lot about how, when we're putting up a show at second city, we talk about protecting the cast, but we also talk about protecting the audience, which is, I think what you're, what, you know, so if you want your, you want your message heard um, and you want them driving home and maybe that's when they start to think a little bit like, Oh, this was say- saying that because if you hit them too far over the head, the, the ears plug up, they're, they're not going to laugh and, and they're not going to potentially um, see your point of view. Uh, and it strikes me that you, in, in all of much of your work in these comedies, you still deal with tough subjects often. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we don't we don't do it like Norman. Norman Norman grabs you by the throat yeah, he does. the problem. And mm-hmm. you know, and he still makes you laugh. Yeah. We we never you know, we we did a, a gay episode in Cheers and we did a um uh, uh we did uh on taxi, I don't I don't remember, but um uh we you know, we we would deal that way. Mm-hmm. But we never set out to change the world or proselytize to anybody. Yeah. Um, you have a thing called a fun clause. Can you tell us what that is and if you ever have used it? Uh, my fun clause is if I'm not having any fun on a show, I can leave. <laughs> and uh, I only use it once. And uh, it was justifiable. Yeah. That, sh- can we talk about what that was or do you not yeah. want to? Yeah. Sure, uh, uh, I did this show. Uh, I did a show for Carsey Warner called "Men Behaving Badly," mm-hmm. based on a, um, which was based on a British show uh, called "Men Behaving Badly," which was about two of the nicest people in the world, two of the nicest uh, men in the world, doing the world's doing dastardly things. Mm-hmm. So when I got involved, they cast Rob Schneider. Now Rob's funny, but he's not the nicest guy in the world. Right. So when he did dastardly things, it took it over the edge and mm-hmm. it just became uh, it just became so difficult. The, mm-hmm. the actors were difficult and I just I can't work in a system like that. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, you also don't call cut on the set. I mean, I think it was something you probably did early in your career, but t- tell us why you stopped doing that. Uh, I stopped doing it because if you call cut, uh, the lighting designer comes in. The makeup people come in, the hairstylist comes in, the costume ladies come in, and it's a it's five to seven minute break. If I don't I don't call cut, then I just go back to the last line that I know I can I can uh, use and just restart the scene there. And so, if the costume's out of place, you're not going to get a letter about it. If the lighting's wrong, you're not going to get a letter. So uh, it just keeps the flow of the show going. And for the audience, they don't have to wait that five to seven minutes with the warm-up man talking to them or telling them jokes or stuff like that. In the old in the old days, mm-hmm. I did it more because we had four film cameras rolling simultaneously. And if you let five minutes of film go by, that's unusable. Uh, that gets expensive. Yeah. But now with cartridges and uh, cards, digital cards, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm going to ask you in a moment for 
a yes and story, and I'll explain that again. But before we do that, again, rewatching Taxi, like I always was an Andy Kaufman fan. Man, just <laughs> he is so he pops off the screen as Latka in a in a way that like I I didn't I didn't realize would be so um, effective uh, uh, still after all these years watching that show. Can you talk a bit about Kaufman? Uh, Andy was, uh, you know, on that cast, I had uh, a cast of uh, people from different planets. And uh, it's harder to work into an ensemble when you have that. But we finally did. Yeah. Uh, You know, because Judd and Mary Lou and Conaway and uh, Danny at Alden Theater. Yeah, on stage. Yeah. uh, uh, Tony, Tony Danza was a boxer. Yeah. Had no experience. Andy was a stand-up comic. Uh, when we got uh, when Chris, Chris Lloyd, Chris Lloyd had done theater too because mm-hmm. they, he and Danny were both in the stage production of uh, of uh, One Flew Over to the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, working with Andy, you you he was he had day night rehearsal. He wouldn't come in until one o'clock. We we would start rehearsals at nine, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. You, you dealt with it because he yeah. was, he, he had a photographic memory. So he knew his lines. Mm-hmm. He, uh, uh, people played off him. Judd was great with him. Uh, he had, he had most scenes with Judd or, or Danny. And mm-hmm. it was, uh, you know, it was very successful. It was other than the Tony Clifton episode. It was, um, all right. You got to tell us about what happened. Cause he, that was in his contract, right? That Tony Clifton would appear in a, yeah, when, when when Jim and and Stan and Ed and David went to hire him, the agreement was that uh, Andy would do the show if Tony Clifton, who was Andy's alter ego, mm-hmm. it meant and Andy would dress in a uh, brocade tuxedo with a fluffy shirt, a wig, prosthetics on his face, and he played this horrible Vegas lounge singer, and he would open for Andy Kaufman. Mm-hmm. And the audience would boom off the stage and then he would, there would be an intermission and he'd come back as foreign man or whatever Andy wanted mm-hmm. to do. And uh, Andy loved doing that. So, so we had to hire Tony Clifton to do one show. So we hired him to play Louis De Palma's brother. So uh, the first day of rehearsal was the day that Bunky, Bucky Dent hit that home run for the Yankees in Fenway Park and yeah. Tony Dan and I were watching television and at 9 a.m. in comes Andy dressed as Tony Clifton and he goes what are you guys doing aren't we rehearsing and he had a cigarette in his mouth so this there was no day night reversal now no he was he was so we went to rehearse and I rehearsed the scene the big scene and I, I, I said to myself, this is not going to work. So I called Ed <laughs> Weinberger. Yeah. And they came down to see the scene and we had, we had to fire him. So they called George Shapiro, uh, Andy's manager, said, we have to fire Tony Clifton. He said, Andy's not going to be happy. <laughs> so he called us back and said he wants to be fired on stage with a prostitute on each knee. <laughs> so, so we... That's what we did. We um, and how was the ensemble responding to this? It was like, well, we came in the next day. This was Tuesday, I think. We came in, and uh, 
you know, Ed Weinberger came down. There was Andy uh, with Tony with a hooker on each knee. Mm-hmm. And Ed said, you're fired. And <laughs> Tony said, I'm not leaving. <laughs> Ed said, you're fired. I'm not leaving. Uh-huh. So I'm watching with Tony. Tony's got a Super 8 camera. And he still hasn't found the film, which pissed me off. Uh. I'm watching that at, with Tony and Conaway and Judd. We're all four of us watching this. And Jeff Conaway gets incredibly angry. Mm-hmm. And he starts rushing the stage. He wants to kill Andy. Yeah. And Tony and I grab him and said, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. You have to sit here and you have to enjoy this. Because right. you're never going to see anything like this again nope. in your life. So, so we backed him down, restrained him. Ed said, you're, Tony, you're fired. I'm not leaving. So Judd said, okay, I'll play. So Judd walks on the stage and picks up Andy, starts dragging him off the stage. Mm-hmm. Andy's screaming, mm-hmm. you know, and he's screaming all the way off the lot. Mm-hmm. And we do the show. We hire another actor to play Louis de Bauman's brother. And next Monday, Andy comes in as if nothing's ever happened. Right. He, he won. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what he wanted to do. Yep. That's what he was. He was a performance artist. Hmm. And now everyone has this story. Yes. Yeah. And it's a great one. Um, when we end the podcast, we always ask our guests for a yes and story. And the idea here. In improvisation, we teach that you get nowhere by saying no, and you actually don't get that far by saying yes. Uh, you say yes and. Um, Wait a minute. You, there are yeah. people who get nowhere by. There are people who get somewhere by saying no. Oh sure, that the, the, uh, uh, the absolutely. And this this is this is the idea that um, we often self censor. Uh, and to get to a place of abundance with ideas, like at the beginning of a creative brainstorm at, you know, five minutes at the beginning of a meeting, uh, vetting and like, like you talked about with your actors, like giving them a chance to have some agency and and try something that's sort of a yes. And mindset, no hugely important for editing for boundaries and other things like that. Or Um, or no is hugely important for a network executive because network executives can say no, and they're going to be right. 95% of the time. From their point of view or oh, from from the because they'll say no, they'll say no and they'll be right because the show is 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 not any good. Mm. So they're going to be right because 95 to 98 percent of the shows are no good. Yes. And so that's why they have trouble saying yes, mm. because they're going to be more right saying no. I'm sorry for that digression. No, it's, it's fine. No, because they they want to do a show. They'd like to do shows that have been done before or a, a variation of something that's done before. They don't want to do new. they don't want to do a show that uh, that has new kind of qualities to it. Something new that they may that uh, that that they don't understand. So, well, I think uh, I think the success you had was you got so established so early that people were going to take a shot on 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 it because you were doing it yeah i mean once the yeah but but as far as trying to bring them you try to bring somebody a new show that's off the wall it's you got to go to cable you can't go to network anymore yeah for yeah the last 25 years 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So from your life though, uh, do you have a yes and story, a time where you normally would have said no, but you, you went for it? So Aaron Rousseau, who produced The Rose, came to me after Taxi and he had a movie written by Francois, Francois uh, Weber, who wrote La Cage de Fall, mm. about, uh, a gay cop and a straight cop that go underground. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I love the script. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think I was really prepared to do a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then once I got in, I knew because I, it's not theater. Yeah. I don't think, I think, I think of theater. What I do is my shows are not filmic. They're capturing a play. Right. So when I got involved in it, I, my ideas were not necessarily original. They were derivative. And I knew, you know, I, I, I thought because my career, I, I, you know, I had, I had done taxi. It was a big hit. And I thought, you know, maybe I could do it, but it turned out it, it didn't. It's not a bad movie, but I didn't like it. I didn't like you had to wait two years to get a result. I didn't like having to shoot every scene six times because there's only one camera. So there were a lot of things that, you know, Jim Brooks loves it and he's mm. at it. Jim Burroughs, eh. Yeah. I think the yes and there and you talk about this a lot in the book is knowing what you're good at and doing what you love. And, and it's yeah. like, nope, that's not what it is. I'm a, th- I'm a theater director that works on these plays that get shot by cameras. Yeah. 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 I wish I, wish I had Sam Mendes' talent. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's made that leap. Yeah, totally. Uh, the book is called Directed by James Burroughs. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, I admire Second City. You guys, uh, even when I was out there, um, I stage managed a show at the Blackstone Theater. Oh, yeah. In Cactus Flower with Hugh O'Brien in 1968. Okay. And the riots were across the street. That's right. You know, at the Hilton. Yep. And even then, I would trudge up to, uh, to see Second City. Oh, that's great. Uh, my dad reviewed that production. He was the theater oh. reviewer for WGN uh, Radio and TV. Well, then he reviewed my father. Oh, he reviewed your father. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Abe staged it. I did get a review, though, mm-hmm. uh, because I put uh, it was Hugh O'Brien and uh, Elizabeth Allen. And then we came back to Chicago and uh, I put um, Larry Parks and Betty Garrett in the show. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's how far back I go. And uh, a guy came to see it and said that maybe the kid had uh, the old man's talent. So oh, that's great. It was very, it was very sweet. And I love the town. Yeah. Uh, you know, you guys, it's just, I had a daughter who went to Northwestern and uh, yeah, that's where my, my wife went. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a real theater town, right? I mean, there's this is. every yeah. night of the week in a, in a back of a bar or in a beautiful, like, Chicago Shakespeare, Goodman, or, or Steppenwolf. It's like, it's everything. And we all know each other That's the, and, and support each other. I know. And you have, you know, Schwimmer, and I've worked with D.W. Moffat. Yeah, sure. With, uh, the Remains, right? Is, yep. With, with Billy Peterson. So, yep. uh, so, you know, you guys have sent me a lot of really good actors. Yeah, well, you've done very well by them. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 
Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive